Father, what a magnificent truth we just sung. That there is none like you. There is none higher. There is none beside. You were there at the beginning. You are here now. You will be there for eternity. Our God, this God, Jesus Christ himself, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, completely transcendent, yet because of the incarnation, the word of God himself made flesh completely imminent now with his people. Awesome. Staggering. Staggering. There is none like you. We can search long, we can search hard, absolutely fruitless until we set our mind on things above and seek the one who gave his life for us. Father, I pray right now as we open your word, we would, as 2 Peter says, do well to pay attention to it. God, you have a word for your church this morning. Guard my mouth from error and I pray that you would humble our hearts right now God, we would willingly humble ourselves under your word today. God, that we don't want to be a church that just hears a good message and then walks out of here unchanged, unencountered with the living God. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would refresh, you would encourage, you would rebuke. God, you would challenge us today in our walk and we would not be a church that wants to stay where we are but we'll continue to press in to know you, to be changed by you, and to become like you because of the work of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit in us. Lord, help us now, we pray. Church, if you agree, in Jesus' name, say amen. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is a very, I mean, every Sunday is pretty exciting around here, but uh, it's really exciting as we, I, I get fired up as we kick off a new sermon series. And this is going to be our fall sermon series. Last week, we launched into what our theme for the year was going to be on biblical foundations, going back to the basics of our faith. You say, why are these fundamentals so important? Well, it was so important that the Apostle John took great pains to write in great detail what these fundamentals were because he knew they would be under attack in his day, in 90 AD, which we will look at today, but also in our day today. I think we can pretty much agree on that. All right. And so this year, this theme of foundations, we're going to be anchoring in and shoring up the foundations of what we believe. Because as Psalm 11 verse 3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so today we start our fall series, you see it on the screen there, called Walking in the Light, going verse by verse through the book of 1 John. And you say, well, well, why 1 John? Well, the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John to write this for the purpose of, get this, calling God's people back to the fundamentals of the faith and giving clarity for the purpose of calling God's people to himself giving clarity on affirming who authentic Christians are and who those are that are claiming the name of Christ but are not actually his. 
right from the start of this book, right out of the gate here, we'll see in verse 1, it goes back to the very foundations of Christianity, beginning with the person of Jesus Christ himself. You say, well, wait a second. Why is it so important that John launches right into this exposition of the purpose of Jesus Christ, giving eyewitness testimony to him? And it is this. We have a problem today. Today we're surrounded by increasing distortion, confusion, and compromise on the teaching of who the Bible reveals Jesus is. Some people say, well, he's just a man. He's just a prophet. He's just a a moral teacher. Uh, He's not a man at all, as we'll see today. People claiming he's not even a man. You see, if we could sum it up, we'd say this. There has never been one man more scrutinized and attacked in history than the person of Jesus Christ. There has never been a man more scrutinized and attacked in the history of mankind than the purpose of Jesus Christ. And here's why. Why does the enemy do this so much? Why is, why is the, the person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, under such attack in our society? And it is this, nothing less than this, not being overdramatic on this either. All of Christianity stands or falls on the person and work of Jesus Christ and who he says he is. All of Christianity stands or falls on it. That if Jesus Christ is not who he says he is, we have no foundation. It's not who we think Jesus is to us. It's not this mentality of, well, you believe what you want to believe. Uh Uh-uh. It's not who we think Jesus is. It's who he says he is. That is literally all of Christianity standing or falling on that. And the reality is this. If Jesus really is who he says he is, then it changes everything about how we live out our lives as his followers with what he calls us to and how he calls us to do it. If Jesus really is who he says he is, it changes everything about how we live our lives as his followers and how we do that. The title of this morning's message, very fittingly, is Our Testimony. It's taken from 1 John chapter 1. We're going to look at the first four verses today. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. If you do not have a Bible with you, our ushers are coming forward right now. Throw up your hand. We want to put a copy of God's Word in front of you so that you can follow along, okay? And if you do not have a copy of God's Word at home, please take that with you because we want to use that as a free gift for you so you can continue to study on your own. And while you're flipping there, 1 John chapter 1... I want to give a little background and context as we launch into this series. Who's John? Who is the Apostle John? Well, he was one of the most three intimate disciples of Jesus Christ. Him, Peter, and James. Peter, James, John. Okay? Called by Jesus Christ, affectionately referred to at least three times in the New Testament as the disciple Jesus loved. There's an intimacy that comes with that. And he was an eyewitness to Jesus' three-year earthly ministry. Along, he witnessed Jesus' death. He witnessed Jesus' resurrection. And he witnessed Jesus' ascension. Can you imagine? Awesome. What? That's amazing. Eyewitness testimony. Now, let's not get confused. John the Apostle is not John the Baptist. Okay? John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, the guy who was in the wilderness with camel fur eating bugs and honey. That's Jesus' cousin. Cool, but not the guy we're talking about. 
All right? So he's not John the Baptist, but this apostle John, he also wrote the gospel of John, the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote the book of Revelation. (laughs) How cool would that have been? Right? All right, he wrote the book of Revelation. He and his brother James, something very cool, I found very, very cool this week in preparation. He and his brother James are called the Sons of Thunder. They were given that nickname. You guys aren't really stoked about that. (laughs) The Sons of Thunder. And there's a reason. And we'll see that in just a little bit. That's pretty cool. But here's the thing. First John, as John's writing this, this is written between 90 and 90 AD. John is well advanced in years at this point. He's an elder in the church. And he's ministering to the churches in Ephesus. Okay, he's ministering to the churches in Ephesus. He's an elder. He's been around. He's giving eyewitness testimony to the work of Jesus Christ. So much so, the authority that he has is so established by God that when John spoke, people listened. When the apostle John spoke, who was given apostolic ministry by Jesus Christ, people tuned in. This guy talks with authority. Now, why was John so concerned about this in Ephesus? Well, you see a map on the screen of where Ephesus is. You'll see it's in modern-day Turkey, which used to be called Asia Minor. And false teachers began rising up within the church. Why? Because Ephesus was the intellectual center of Turkey. So you had some of the most prominent minds in all of Europe coming around into Ephesus and bringing all of these intellectual ideas with them. And so what's happening here is false teachers take these ideologies, don't filter them through the lens of scripture, and they start rising up within the church to teach them as biblical truth. Doctrine of scripture with the latest philosophical trends, which ultimately led to false doctrines within the church. And so 1 John is specifically written to confront these. It's not so much a polemical book, which is used to attack these doctrines, but it's used to affirm what the doctrine of scripture already says. Okay? So John's writing to affirm and confront that. Now, the most dangerous heresy, what were some of these heresies? Well, the most dangerous heresy at the time that was going on was called Gnosticism. John's writing to confront. And it's the Greek word for Gnosticism means knowledge. Okay? Makes sense. You're in the intellectual center of Europe. He's confronting Gnosticism. And there's two main things that it said. Number one is this. All physical matter was inherently evil and only spirit was good. You're starting to see the problem. All physical matter was inherently evil. There's nothing good in it. Only spirit was good. Every human being, inherently evil, nothing good, only spirit. Therefore, what's happening here is Gnosticism is denying the true humanity of Christ. That's a problem. Denying the true humanity of Christ, the incarnation where God became a man through his son, Jesus Christ. And and they did this in order because they thought they had to preserve Jesus, preserve him from any kind of evil. They still thought he was some form of deity, but they didn't think he was human. And they're teaching this in the church. 
And they've, they've taught that Christ did not have a physical body. He only appeared to have one. But it wasn't an actual physical body because physical bodies would be inherently evil. So how can Jesus Christ be evil? And the second thing that the Gnostics said was only though, the, the only people who could be saved were those who were enlightened with a secretive or higher knowledge and you couldn't be saved through repentance and of sin and faith in Jesus Christ alone. If you were one of the fortunate enough ones to be enlightened with the higher knowledge of Scripture, you would be saved. Talk about hopeless. Talk about major heresy that John's confronting here with this. You see, this is what the churches in Asia Minor were facing then. And loved ones, let's, let's, let's face it. Let's tell it like it is. There's nothing new under the sun. It is what the churches here in the 21st century are facing today with increasing opposition. To discredit the person and work of Christ and ultimately to discredit our faith of Christianity. The attacks are still going and increasing. And in this text, we see three essential truths that we must hold to and not compromise on if our testimony is to be that Jesus Christ is Lord. If our testimony is that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God, we need to hold on to these three truths. And there's so much we could say about this. It's a doctrine of incarnation, but we're gonna, this is where expositional preaching is so helpful. We're going to live in the text. What does it say about him right now? And then trust that God, through his Holy Spirit, will bring to light the other areas as well. So in the authority of Scripture, let's stand to honor that. And we'll read 1 John 1, 1 to 4. That's the background. Here's the letter. The word of life. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life that was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, to testify Jesus Christ is Lord, the first truth we must have is we must have a right recognition of him. We must have a right recognition of him. Let's look at verse 1 where John says, That which was from the beginning which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Okay, right off the top, notice what's different about John's letter here. Son of thunder coming out. He's like, I'm not going to patronize you with a greeting. I'm not going to say the apostle John, born of the leader of that. He's like, we're just going to business. Love that. He's like, here we are, right off the top, without even giving an introduction. John wastes no time in making a definitive statement regarding the truth of who Jesus Christ is. You see that in verse 1? Fully God, fully man. Fully God, fully man. Two distinct natures. One person. Awesome. Awesome. Look at it. Let's dissect it. First part of the verse. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning. That's a loaded statement. Right there. Those few words. That which was from the beginning. 
what we see here is that the Greek word for that, which was from the beginning, is actually translated who. Who was from the beginning? Okay? Important to study the original languages. Who was from the beginning? And the beginning, the Greek word for that was, means the beginning of all things. The ruler that comes first and is the chief power. Awesome. Preeminent. The one who has all authority. Who was from the beginning? And you see, we see three divine attributes here. He's fully God. And the first thing we see, the first attribute we see is this. He's uncreated. He's uncreated. Jesus Christ, fully God, uncreated. He was at the beginning of all things. Now, is that what he said? He was from the beginning. Does that ring a bell to anywhere else in scripture, by the way? How about this, Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God. Love it. God created the heavens and the earth. And here he says, who was from the beginning? Jesus Christ God himself, same language. And I love how Colossians 1, 16 and 17 puts this. This is one of the most staggering verses for me. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says this, for by him, that is Jesus Christ, God created the heavens and the earth. My, my apologies, wrong verse. For by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth. I love this. All things were created through him. And for him, he is before all things, or at the beginning of all things, and in him all things hold together. That is a staggering truth. Through Jesus Christ, all things hold together. So we see that which was from the beginning. Don't skip over. Every word inspired, every word gets preached, is, has massive magnitude for who the person of Jesus Christ is. Uncreated. Second divine attribute we see is this. Jesus Christ was not just uncreated. It means because he's uncreated, he's eternal. He's eternal. Since he is uncreated and existed before time began, he can't be destroyed. Who's going to destroy him? He's not created. He created everything, including you and me. He's eternal. He will not be destroyed. He has always existed and always will. First divine attribute we saw from that statement, that which was from the beginning, he's uncreated. Secondly, because he's uncreated, he's eternal. But look what else this verse says about him. He is the word or self-expression of God. Look at verse one. That which was from the beginning, then here's the middle part, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which we've touched with our hands. And here it is, look at, concerning the word of life. Jesus Christ, divine attribute, is the word or self-expression of God. The Greek word there, and I normally don't tell you the Greek words, but we need to know this word. The Greek word there for word is logos. Logos, okay? It is the name given to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, get this, this is amazing. Jesus Christ was God's proclamation of his gospel message to us. Get this, Jesus Christ, being the Logos, was both the preacher of the message and the message itself. Try to get your head around that. 
He's the preacher of the message and the message. I'm preaching the word of God right now, but I'm not the message. Jesus Christ is the message. So everything he said is pointing to himself, as he said numerous times throughout scripture. That's awesome. John 1.1, 1, 1, you'll see it on the screen, says this. In the beginning, same language, there it is. In the beginning was the word, the logos, same word. The word was with God, as God's son, and the word was God. He was in the beginning of all things with God. You see here in 1 John, Christ is identified as the word of life right here because Christ is the message of eternal life. And it is through putting our faith and trust in him alone that we have eternal life with him also. He's the word of life. This is the word of life. Don't let it sit under your bed. The word of God himself, Jesus Christ. So we see three divine attributes from that one statement that Jesus Christ is fully God. But let's also look what we see in this verse. It says this, Jesus Christ is fully man. He's fully man. This is God becoming a man known as the doctrine of the incarnation. God becoming a man, the word made flesh. John states here that in addition to being fully God, Christ was also fully man. Look at part B in that verse, that which was from the beginning. Okay, now look, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes. See what he's doing here? Which we've looked upon and have touched. Eyewitness testimony. He was fully man. John says that he was a witness to Christ and he saw him with his eyes, touched him with his hands, heard him with his ears, and notices all these pictures. He did life intimately with him. Intimately with him. And so what were some of these, how do we know? How do we know that what John is saying is true? Yes, he's an eyewitness testimony, but what was he an eyewitness testimony of? Let's take a look. All throughout the New Testament we see this. Evidence of Christ's human attributes. Number one. He got hungry. Matthew 4, 2. He got hungry. Do you get hungry? Anyone? Just me? Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. Yeah, I get hungry. Here's the other thing. Uh, he got thirsty. John nineteen twenty eight. He got thirsty. Another human attribute. He got tired. He got weary, it says. John 4, 6. Anyone ever get tired? Aren't you glad you have a savior that can identify with you in that? Awesome. He got tired. Uh, number four, he grew up as a boy. Luke 2, 52. He grew in wisdom and stature. That means he's growing up as a boy. Number four, or number five, sorry. Uh, he died. Mark 15, 37. He died. You and I will too. But here's the thing, here's, here's a, another radical piece of Christ being fully man, the doctrine of the incarnation, it is this. It's not just the physical attributes, but the human attributes also include emotionally and mentally too. His mental capacity, his emotional capacity, fully man. 
not just his body. Again, two distinct natures in one person. John 1.14 says this, and the word, that is the logos, became flesh, that is became human and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Yes, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What a statement. What a statement. Okay, so let's try to get our minds around this whole concept here of the person of Christ. You're going to see a highly advanced technical picture that I did this week to help us with this. Okay, what are you laughing at? All right, so here's the thing. You tried drawing the incarnation. So here's the thing. The person, the person of Christ is that circle. He's got a divine nature. He's got a human nature. One person, two distinct natures. Just look at that for a moment. He's not saying here, he's not two different people. He's not a human God and a divine God. He's not, doesn't have two different bodies, a human body, but he doesn't, and a, and a spiritual body. He doesn't have a human mind and at the same time not have a spiritual one. He doesn't have, like, think about this. He's not like blended the human nature, the divine nature, blended into one kind of nature for himself. They're two distinct natures. Fully God, fully man. Not just a human body and a divine mind. Fully minded as a man. Fully bodied as a man. Fully minded as God. Like, unbelievable. Awesome. Truth. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. He says, in the incarnation, the Logos became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. Yes. Good summary. In the incarnation, the Logos became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. Okay. Just keep that picture up there, Aaron. Thanks, man. Okay. Stop for a moment. (laughs) Stop. God himself became a man, yet stayed fully God. Okay, let's break that down a bit. The creator and sustainer of the universe humbled himself to become a man, get this, and needed to learn how to walk from the very people he was giving breath to so they could teach him. Okay, let's try to help with this a bit. The source of all true wisdom humbled himself to be taught by others to learn how to speak, spell, and write as he was teaching them how to teach him. the one this one blew me away on my prayer walk last night as I looked up and saw the sky just take some time to look at the stars next time you're out the one who holds every star in its place and calls each of them out by name Isaiah 40 26 needed to be carried in the bosom of his mother while he was giving her strength because he couldn't hold himself up
yet holding every star in place and every planet in orbit at the same time. Loved ones, I don't care what else you call awesome, nothing's awesome compared to that. When you're tempted to call your next car or the next movie or the next job or next opportunity, oh, that's awesome. Please don't discredit the one who truly is. Let's reserve that for the one who's worthy of it. You see, the one who had perfect intimacy with his father in heaven became a man to be rejected by man. Did you ever think of this? Jesus Christ was the one giving strength to the soldiers as they were beating him, whipping him, and nailing him to the cross. He gave them the strength to do that to him. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had it. He sustains everything. He gave you the breath right now that you just took. J.I. Packer says this about the God-man. He says, This is the greatest mystery of all time, the union of the Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. Amen? Amen. That is truly awesome. Let me ask you a question. Are you in awe of this truth? Do you live your life in awe of what this truth means, what this beautiful doctrine, this glorious doctrine means for our lives? Or have we allowed it to have that devastating impact on our hearts called familiarity? Devastating. Do we live in awe of this truth? When you look up in the sky, when you look out over the waters, when you see the trees and you see the mountains and you see people from every age, race, ethnicity all around us, does that put you in awe of this truth that makes it all happen? Have we heard it just too many times that it's become familiar? And you say, why is this so crucial? Why did John emphasize this so much? This is verse one. Okay, why did John emphasize it so much? Because here's why. To deny Jesus' humanity is to deny something at the very heart of Christianity. And here it is, ready? Our ability to have a substitute for our sin and ultimately a savior. You deny the humanity of Jesus, you have now denied salvation is possible. You see why the enemy works so hard to do this? back in Ephesus' day, and now increasingly in our day? See, if Jesus was not a man, then it was impossible for him to die for our sins as humans. He couldn't do it and pay the penalty for those sins that is due for us. But God. Amen? Hebrews 2.17 makes it clear. He says this, Therefore, you'll see it on the screen, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. That is, us in every, res- every respect. Is that comforting today? Every respect to make propitiation, that is satisfaction for the sins of the people. A sacrifice that God would be satisfied with. A perfect sacrifice, which we could never be. 
He had to become like us in every way and live a perfect life for that. And not only this, but if, think about this. If Christ didn't become a man, we would not have a God who could identify with us in every part of our lives. If he didn't become a man, you think, you think God doesn't know what you're going through right now better than you do? In your anxiety, in your addiction, in your struggle, in your fear, in your doubt, in your suffering, in your temptation, Jesus Christ was tempted in every way like that and yet did not sin. How do you know this? Don't take my word for it. Take his. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. You'll see it on the screen. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who, get this today, in every respect. Yeah, but Jesus didn't see this coming. No, he was actually tempted in every respect that you and I will be in our lives. There is nothing you and I will face he was not already tempted with. Yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I will save you the struggle and say this. No other religion gives us this. Every other religion is do, 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 do to try to earn. And Jesus says it's done. It's done. It is finished. You don't have to earn it. And some of you may say, well, why would God do this? Like, why would he do that? He leaves perfection. He leaves intimacy. He leaves everything. To come down and get killed and spit on and rejected. Here's the answer. Four letters. Love. Love. Jesus Christ loves you. John 3.16, one of the most quotable texts in all of scripture. For God so Loved, say that with me, church. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Love drives it. That's powerful love. And it's a love you can't earn. And we only can love him because he first loved us. Hey, I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord today. But you need to know that the Lord loves you with a steadfast love. And he gave his life for you so that you could call on him and be his child. And if you are his child, his love for you goes into every situation you're facing and promises that he will give you the strength to overcome it no matter what you're facing, because he was tempted the same way. Awesome. Have you responded to this word of life, loved ones? Have you responded to it and received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's, that's the most important question of your life, right there. Have I responded to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Have I repented of my sin and surrendered my life to him? That's where everything starts. And if you have done that, let me ask you this. Are you living in awe at the reality of the incarnation and a right recognition of him? Because here's the reality, what happens when you do that. There's never, ever again a mundane day for you. Ever. To testify Jesus Christ as Lord, we must have a right recognition of him. And this will lead us to having, here it is, ready? Ready? 
Truth number two, a right proclamation of him. To testify Jesus Christ as Lord, we must have a right proclamation of him. On to verse two. Ready? Here we go. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. See, John re-emphasizes here. See what he's driving home against the Gnostics? He's re-emphasizing that he was an eyewitness to the word of life, Jesus Christ, who had become manifest. The Greek word there for manifest means clear or visible. Okay? He became clear and dwelt among them. Now John takes it one step further. So he's got a right recognition of him, but now he takes it one step further when he says, now we testify to you and proclaim to you the eternal life. The Greek word there for proclaim means to preach or to declare. John is preaching the gospel here. John says that based on his eyewitness testimony and the mission given to him and every follower of Christ to see the gospel taken all nations, he's not keeping this truth to himself. If you are saved in Jesus Christ, you and I are not called to keep this truth to ourselves. We can't keep it to ourselves when we recognize who our Savior is and how desperately your neighbors, your co-workers, your homeschool moms, your everyone else needs them. You can't keep it to yourself, loved ones. He's now proclaiming the message of eternal life through Jesus Christ to the churches in Asia Minor and ultimately to all people. See, here's the reality. Here's a quote that just summarizes this. A right recognition of Christ will fuel the right proclamation of Christ. Always. A right recognition of Christ will always fuel the right proclamation of him. No distortions. And ultimately, what John is doing here is drawing... You see what he's doing here? On this pro, this is who we proclaim. This is who he is. He's drawing a line in the sand for what is the proclamation of the true gospel. If anyone says anything else, they are not proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It is distorted. It is being twisted. It is not the true gospel. It's a line in the sand moment. It is this way or no way. There are no other versions of it. This is it. Let me ask you a question. Bring that into today. Is this what we see being proclaimed in our culture today? Not a trick question. Is this what we see being proclaimed in our culture? How about in, in an increasing number of churches today? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a man, dwelt in flesh, lived a perfect sinless life, died on a cross to pay the penalty that you and I deserve for our sins, rose again three days later, defeating death for all time, and now it is through him alone that we can have eternal life with him? Is that what we're hearing proclaimed? Or is it more this? All gods lead to heaven. Or, all gods are the same God, just a different path to get there. Or this, believe what you want. What works for you, works for you. Which one do we hear more of? See, this is why it's a line in the sand. You know, you know and it hit me this week, as I was going about doing some errands, it's more like this. If you mention God in our society, like I believe in God... Most of the time, you're not going to have a problem. If I say, do you believe in God? They're like, yeah, I believe God's there. Okay. You're not going to have a problem most of the time. 
but you mentioned Jesus, now we have a problem. The incar- see, the incarnation is the stumbling block. The incarnation is the stumbling block. Why? Because of the truth that the incarnation calls us to. John Piper put it this way. I'm going to read it slowly so we can chew on it. Look at this. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. Ouch. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient. Because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. Break that down. You're not the center of your life. And this man becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. The incarnation is a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Wow. I'm just going to let that hang out there for a sec. This is a line in the sand right here. This is the testimony that every genuine follower of Jesus Christ is committed to proclaim and live their lives by and what every church that is committed to preaching the true gospel of Christ will proclaim in season and out of season. And loved ones, here it is in case you're wondering, this is the line in the sand for us as a church. This is what we stand on. That will not change. By the grace of God, that will not change. You can't say you love Jesus and proclaim anything else that is not a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. This is the line in the sand for us and our beliefs. The proclamation and practice as true disciples of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question before we head into our last point. Is this the message of the gospel you have received and the one you have committed your life to proclaiming? Have you received it and have you committed your life to proclaiming it? If so, let me ask you a question. Are you proclaiming it in every part of your life through the power of Christ in you, saying it's not about me, it's about him? May he increase as I decrease. He becomes greater, I become less. In your actions, in your words, with your kids, in your service in the church, with your spouse, are you proclaiming the awesomeness of our Savior Jesus Christ? Our rebellious hearts work very hard to deny the truth of the incarnation and what it calls us to. What part of your life or parts of your life are you still proclaiming yourself, your way, your time?
See, to testify Jesus Christ as Lord, we must have a right recognition of him. We must have a right proclamation about him. And as we do this in his power, lastly, it will result in a right response to him. It will result in a right response to him. Look at verses three to four. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. See, in verse 3 there, John states again for the fourth time now, he is an eyewitness to Christ and now gives the purpose behind why he's committed to preaching Christ. You see this? Here's the purpose why he's committed. So that true believers would have fellowship with not only him and other Christians, but they would have fellowship with God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. He wants to proclaim the gospel as much as possible so as many people as possible can come into fellowship with Jesus Christ and with the body of Christ, his church. Now the Greek word for fellowship there, another important one, this is a doctrine series, so another important word, koinonia. Don't try to spell it. Koinonia, which means this, the fellowship he's talking about. It's not like, hey, let's get together at Kelsey's and hang out. He's talking about sharing a bounded, sharing or being bounded in spiritual fellowship, being in personal relationship, intimate relationship with someone. John makes it clear that it is through the faithful preaching of the gospel that people, upon responding to its message, are brought into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and share their lives. Get this, ready? Ready? Ready this? Share their lives not only in fellowship or partnership with him, as if that's not good enough, as if that's not awesome enough, but also we share our lives and in fellowship with other true believers who've done the same. That's awesome. We don't just share our life with Christ. That's amazing enough. We get to share our life with each other, doing life together. And why? Why why is this? Look at verse 4. John says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The Greek word for complete means filled to capacity. Filled to capacity with the joy that comes from being in relationship with Jesus Christ and with his church. John says that through a relationship with Christ, the joy of the believer can be at capacity. Hey, loved ones, need some joy? Need some joy today? Here you go. Here's some, here's some good theology for your joy right now. Okay? It's not based on where you're going for lunch either. Check this out. Good theology. That can be at capacity. You can have joy at capacity right now, no matter your circumstance, because everything you could ever want or need is found in him. Amen? No matter what you're going through. Not to take away or minimize your pain, but right in the middle of your pain, we come to Jesus Christ. He says, it's found in me. I'm your healer. I'm your peace. I'm your joy. I'm your strength. Right there. And added to this, as if that wasn't enough, a supernatural gift from the Father added to this is the joy that we get of sharing our lives in fellowship with other believers, doing life together, bearing one another's burdens, so fulfilling the law of Christ. And listen to this. Here's God's family. You want to see a picture of God's family? It transcends every race, age, ethnic, or other artificial barrier this world establishes to separate people. Boom! The family of God transcends it all. Look around at our world today. Look at the racial wars going on right now. 
And you see, John turns on a pastor's heart right here. See his pastor's heart? I'm writing this. He said, my joy, our joy would be complete. His joy in seeing people grow in this gives John this joy of seeing people grow in the Lord and it should give us as the body of Christ joy as we see each other growing. See, because look at our world today. Here's a statement that came this week and it says this, true fellowship does not exist apart from Jesus Christ. It's impossible because it's never man-made. True fellowship, the one our hearts long for, is a gift from the Lord. It is a supernatural work. It can't be manufactured. You can have all the social clubs you want. It's not going to happen. It's a supernatural work. True fellowship does not exist apart from Jesus Christ. How do we know that? John 15, 11. Look at this. Jesus says this. These things I've spoken to you. Ready? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. With Jesus Christ in us, joy becomes full. And the reality of that, these are so interconnected. I get so confused when people say, I love Jesus, I just don't love his church. Nah, you don't love Jesus. Just saying. Don't take my word for it, just take his. Complete joy comes from loving Jesus Christ in personal relationship with him and then loving what he loves and is passionate about, his church. See, our love for God is seen in his love for his church. If our true joy is in Christ, then we will take joy in living in fellowship with one another and serving him together. And too many things, too many churches today have this slip-in, slip-out mentality. I'll just duck in for a service and then I'm out the door. Not getting known and loved. Not doing life together. Not serving alongside each other. And it was not how the church was meant to be. We think it's safer but it's actually isolating us. And we're not walking in complete joy. Some of, those, some of the people who do that, most of the people who do that are some of the most miserable people who come into the church. Why? Because they're not doing life together like we were intended to. Hey, Harvest, as we start to close here, I just want to take a look around. Just take a look around right now. This is, this is your family. Love seeing the waves. This is your family, Harvest. This fellowship right here. Hey, eyes up. Only Jesus could do this. Only Jesus could do this. And personally, as I shared John, I appreciated John's pastoral heart here as he's saying the joy, he sees the believers growing. I want to share just a personal testimony, church. I must say that it is nothing less than one of the greatest privileges and joys of my life to be your pastor. And to cheer you on and to encourage you and challenge you in your walk with the Lord, in crying with you, in sharing with you, and in doing life together in this uncommon community, which is just a foretaste of us spending eternity together with Christ. I love seeing God at work in your lives.
And I pray every day that you would love seeing him at work in each other's life and cheer each other on and stir one another up to love and good deeds. Are you living out the joy you've been given through Jesus Christ with him and one another in this church? Are you? If you're here and you've never confessed Christ as your Savior, your first step is to respond to God's word today by repenting of your sin and confessing him as your Lord and Savior. That's the line in the sand. There's no other way. And if you have, are you living out the joy you have in Christ by, here it is, quick snapshot, making time to spend with him in his word, worshiping him, praying to him. How about our prayer night coming up on Wednesday? Pack that out. That's going to be a powerful night. Witnessing for him, proclaiming him, and here it is, serving him through this church by doing life together with your brothers and sisters in this uncommon community. What's your next step you need to take? Let's pray. Father, this is what it means for us to testify Jesus Christ as Lord through having a right recognition of him, a right proclamation about you and resulting in a right response to you. Father, I pray today that as your word has gone forth, we would be in absolute awe of this truth this morning. Awe of you, the sacrifice you made for us that love compelled you to make. And Lord, that we would love what you love. We would love your church. We would love this body of Christ that you are assembling from all ages and races and ethnicities and backgrounds. It is a beautiful thing. And God, I confess, I'm so humbled to be a part of this. Lord, would you fill us with that joy, complete love for you and for one another as we come alongside each other in in the celebration, in the pain, in the trial, in the uncertainty. God, that we would not cease to pursue you together as one unified by your spirit. Father, this is the line in the sand. Help us stay faithful to stand on it. We pray this in Jesus' name, only Jesus. Amen.